You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Matthew chapter 21 today. We're going to finish out Matthew chapter 21. We'll get verses 23 to the end of the chapter um, there. Several years ago, uh, our family uh, took a road trip to San Diego, California. And if you've ever Googled uh, directions to San Diego, California from Kansas City, it's a long trip. Uh, 24-hour trip. And so we thought it would probably be wise to break up the trip and do a couple of days journey to get out there. So we drove the first way out there. We drove up through Colorado and Utah and that direction. Then on the way back from San Diego, we came down through Arizona and a little bit of Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, that, that direction. So on the way out there, we Get to, I think it was like Frisco, Colorado. We make it to there the first night, um, stay the night there, and then we've got reservations at Zion National Park in Utah the next night. And so we start this journey out. If you've ever taken that journey from Frisco, Colorado to wherever Zion, Utah, wherever that, that's at Zion National Park, that is some of the most beautiful scenery that you can ever see. As we were driving that, we, it was snowing when we got to Frisco. That next morning we wake up, it's beautiful, it's sunny. And just every, around every corner white was this beautiful scenery. And so we are driving this beautiful scenery heading to Zion National Park. And we're taking 70 basically till 70 ends and then you get on 15 highway. Well, as we're driving along, all of a sudden, this, these clouds come in, and it begins, sorry, I had a string hanging off there. That would annoy, like some of you see that, would, that would have been annoying you the whole service. I'm glad I saw it as well. Um, so uh, we're, we're driving from 70 here, getting on to 15, and all of a sudden, these clouds come in, and it begins to snow, and it just doesn't snow. It starts almost turn into a blizzard. So we're on the highway going super slow, but it's like, I'm... Let's just keep going, right? We got a place to be. I don't want to get there late. Let, let's just keep persevering on. So we're driving slow. You got traffic going this way. We're going this way. And all of a sudden, a pileup, a cars begin to wreck on the other side of the highway, and a pileup begins to happen. And here's actually a picture from that wreck. So Ruth's in the back, back seat of the car, which is probably best for me and her that she was in the, the back of the car. But this is the beginning of it. So we see this start to happen and we're driving along slowly as, as these cars are beginning to run into each other. You can see this one guy's out of his car, which is like, this is a horrible idea. You need to get back in the car, right? And so we're moving along, again, super slow, People are going literally 60, 70 miles an hour into these cars. And then all of a sudden, a semi's coming. And like, yes, that's what our car, that was the, like, it went dead silent in our car. And we're like, no, right? Like, stop. Flashing our lights, trying to, you know, obviously we couldn't stop the semi, but you don't know what to do in that moment as a semi is 
barreling 70 miles an hour, 60, 70 miles an hour toward this. The another, then so a semi barrels into that, then another semi comes down, sees what's going on, has the, the wherewithal to lay himself down. So he goes into the middle and lays his, and we're watching all of this happen. And for the next hour in our car, it was dead silent. Because we literally thought death happened. Because cars were plowing into each other. I mean, it, by the time we got away from it, it had to be at least 30 or 40 cars that were piled up there as we're moving along. And I thought to myself after that, there needed to be a warning sign. Something that would warn people that you're about to head into a, a pileup, right? You're about to head into destruction. There needed to be a sign like this, right? Accident ahead. Just as a way to warn them, like, you may not slow all the way down, but at least slow down a little bit because there's an accident ahead. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus interacts with the religious leaders of the day, and he gives them three parables as warning signs. You're heading for destruction. You're heading towards death. And I'm warning you, you're going down the wrong path. To understand this, we, we have to go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 21. Remember, Matthew chapter 21 transitions us in the book to the last eight days of Jesus' life. For 20 chapters, we've spent 32 years of Jesus' life, right? Now we come back to these last eight chapters, and in these last eight chapters, Matthew spends all of it on the last eight days of Jesus' life. So in Matthew chapter 21, it begins with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, showing that he has all authority, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king that they've been waiting for. It's him saying, the cat is out of the bag. I want you to know, I'm not gonna hide it anymore. You're gonna know who I am. And so he rides in on a donkey. Then he goes into the temple. And what does he do in the temple? He flips over the tables and says, this is a house that is built for prayer. This is for the Gentiles to worship God. This is a place for them to connect with God. And you've turned it into a den of robbers. You've turned it into commerce. You've missed the point, showing that he has authority over the temple. Then Jesus curses the fig tree and it withers up. And Jesus uses that as a, a picture of, of prayer and the, the power that prayer can have. And so in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23, the religious people are catching wind that Jesus is coming out, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king. They've seen him ride in on a donkey. They've seen him come into the temple and flip the tables. He's also healing people in the temple area. So there's no hiding that he believes that he is the king, that he is the Messiah. And the religious crowd recognizes. Look at verse 23 of Matthew 21. And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And we're probably in Tuesday now of the last eight days of Jesus' life. 
And he said, they say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? So what they're doing is they're recognizing that Jesus has authority. Remember what we talked about last week? That he has all authority and they're recognizing that. And so they come to Jesus as he's teaching in the temple and they say, who gave you this authority? So rather than them saying, I wonder if Jesus is right. I wonder if we should submit ourselves to his authority. Instead, they're coming to Jesus saying, who gave you the right to do these things? Who gave you the right to ride in and on donkey? Who gave you the right to come into the temple and flip the tables over and say that this is a place of prayer for all nations? Who gave you that right to heal people of their diseases? So how does Jesus answer them? Verse 24, Jesus answered them as he masterfully does. I also will ask you one question. So Jesus turns it back on them And says, if you tell me the answer, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question that Jesus asked. The baptism of John. All right, we've been journeying with John in this. We we saw when John came and baptized Jesus. We saw when John was beheaded. And so Jesus is asking them about John the Baptist. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? So he's saying, was John the Baptist's ministry, was it divine or human? This is going to tell a lot about where these religious people are at, these chief priests and scribes. And so they began to think about it, look at it. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe in him? So if, if we say that John the Baptist was sent from God, that he was a prophet sent from God, then John the Baptist affirmed that Jesus was from God, then we're going to be saying that Jesus is from God. So they can't say that John the Baptist was from God because then they sort of paint themselves in a corner and they have to say, well, if you believed in John the Baptist and his message, then you're going to have to believe in me. Look at Then they think the other side. But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So you have this fear that they're going to lose power if they say he's from, from God. He's divine. They're also going to lose influence if they say that John was from man. Because John was looked up to as a prophet. So they think through it and they come up with a good political answer to Jesus. They say, verse 27, they answer Jesus, we do not know, right? Like, just take the middle road there, right? Like, we we don't know if he was divine or he was from God, if he was from, if, or if he was from man. And so Jesus then answers them and says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, why didn't Jesus just go ahead and say to them, Here, here's, here's who John the Baptist was from. Here's where I get my authority from. Why is Jesus holding out on them? The reason that Jesus is holding out on them 
is not because they need more information. Right? He could have told them, here is how John the Baptist is from God. Here's how I am from God. This is where my authority comes from. But they didn't need more information. They needed to believe. Say that. They didn't need more head knowledge about who Jesus was. He's been revealing himself for the last two years of his ministry, and they've been around and they've heard about him. He's been revealing himself. So this wasn't an information issue. That's why Jesus doesn't go there. Because they didn't need more information. They needed to believe in him. They needed to put their faith and trust in him. And so he doesn't answer their questions Instead, he gives them three parables. He gives them three warning signs as a way to say, listen, fellas, you're headed towards destruction. You're headed towards death unless you believe in me, unless you trust in me. So Jesus doesn't shut them down in this moment. Instead, he tells them, Three stories, three practical stories that have a spiritual truth to them. Let's look at the three stories that Jesus tells them. We'll, we'll hit two of them today and we'll catch the next one uh, next Sunday. The first parable that Jesus shares with these scribes and Pharisees, all right, so that's the context, the chief priest and the elders. When you get to the end of this passage, it's going to say the chief priest and the Pharisees, right? So Jesus, his audience is very specific here. It's religious people. He's not talking to the prostitutes. He's not talking to the tax collectors. He's talking to the people who go to Antioch Bible Baptist Church, who say, I'm a member of Antioch Bible Baptist Church. Right? He's talking to people that consider themselves to be religious people. I want you to understand that as we come into the text. It's really important for us to see it through the lens of who Jesus is, is teaching these parables to. So he says to them in verse 28, what do you think? So again, rather than shutting them down and saying, you guys just don't get it, Jesus begins to engage with these religious guys and he tells them this first parable. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and he went. Verse 30, and he went to the other son and said the same. And the other son says, son number two, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? So you guys get the story, right? Pretty simple story Jesus shares with them. A father comes to his two sons. First son, he says, I want you to go work in the vineyard. He says, no way, dad. Too tired, right? I've got some Xbox to play, or right? I've got some friends I'm gonna go hang out with. I don't, I don't have time to go to the vineyard today. But he thinks about it some more and changes his mind and goes and works in the vineyard. He comes to the second son, and to the second son he says, I want you to go work in the vineyard. His immediate response is, I will go, sir, right? Like respectful, I will go, sir. But this son, 
doesn't go to the vineyard. He just says he will, but he doesn't follow through with his actions. So Jesus asked them, as a good teacher, which one of the two did the will of his father? Well, you know the answer, and they, they knew the answer, right? Look, they said the first. Of course. Even though his words were first, I'm not going to go, but he eventually did the will of his father, as opposed to the second who just had lip service to his father, but his life didn't back it up. Listen to what Jesus says to these religious leaders. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the worst people in society that Matthew could use their identifiers as. Everybody hated tax collectors. Just remember, Matthew was a tax collector, right? So he's, he's putting himself in there. Tax collectors and prostitutes, women who sold their body for sex, right? He's the, the two worst things that he could think about in society. He says, this tax collector and the prostitute go into the kingdom of God before you. Yes. Ouch. These are good people. Religious. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. What is the way of righteousness? The preaching of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe in him. You see, the tax collectors and the prostitutes got it. They went and they saw John the Baptist. And when they heard his message, they changed their mind and they believed in the message and the messenger, which would be eventually Jesus. Whereas the second guy didn't, right? And that's like the Pharisees. That's like the scribes. They, they heard the message, but they didn't change their mind and believe. They, they didn't repent is another word to say and believe in him. The warning that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees, to the religious people, is a warning of dead faith. He's got a warning sign up for them through this parable saying, your faith is dead. It's all talk. But there's no life. It's a dead faith. Listen to the words of James. In James chapter 2 and verses 14 through 26. It's a long section, but, but I think it's the heart of what Jesus was after here with this parable of, I'm not going to go, but I'm going to change my mind and believe and do what the Father asks, or I'm going to just have words, but my life doesn't back it up. James puts it this way, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Jesus has a warning sign for these religious people. You have a dead faith. If you don't change your mind and believe, it will end in death and destruction. And it is the same warning for you and I today. Which son are you? If you took Jesus out of your life, would there be anything different about your life? Like if you never read your Bible again, you never came to church again, you were never a part of a Christian community again, you never prayed again, would anything be different about your life? Do you have a dead faith? When, when you talk about your faith, is it always in the past tense? The good old days? I, I bet these religious leaders had some good stories about how God had worked in their life and the great things that God had done in their life. Past tense. Now, right in front of them is the Messiah, is the one that they had been waiting for. And they're so blinded by their self-righteousness, by what they believed was right, that they are missing Jesus. When you talk about your faith, is it always past tense? Well, man, I remember when we started coming to Antioch. Boy, God was working in my heart. We came in, man, we were at every service that we could be at. 
We were involved in group life. We were serving. Man, we, we loved the community of Antioch. We loved what God was doing here. And he was working in our hearts. And we were growing in our faith. And the fruit of the Spirit was becoming more evident in our life every day. But as your faith has gone on, it's begun to wane. It's begun to fade. And we see it, church. We see it. People will come, and and I'm talking to those of you that have been here for 15 plus years. You come, and when you first came, those were the good old days. God was working and moving, and you were involved and serving and a part of a group. And then here's what we watch happen. You can talk to any of the pastors. We see this, and it grieves our heart. Is all of a sudden then groups being a part of community, it's just you don't have time for that. So yeah, you'll still come to church and you'll still serve, but, but being a part of a group, that's just too much time. I've got sports, I've got schedules, I've got work. So all of a sudden, the, the group life falls off. And, and again, we, we watch this happen, it'll fall off. Then all of a sudden, serving becomes, well, I just want to do that once a month. I don't want to overcommit to being a part of community, and so I'll serve once a month. Because I don't, again, I've got a lot going on, and an hour on Sunday or an hour on Wednesday night to serve, that, that's a lot of commitment. And so I only want to commit to, to, to once a month. And then all of a sudden, what we'll watch happen, and it, all of a sudden, we can miss a Sunday here and there. Like we can watch online. We'll pick it up later. Our kids have got to be at those sports games at one o'clock. So that rushes our morning. We don't want to rush our morning. We want to be able to get to our kids' sports games. And we're, now we're down to maybe twice a month members of Antioch coming to church. And in that twice a month, one of the, month, one of the Sundays you're serving so you're not even in worship together. And then here's what's happened next. So you lose group life. All of a sudden, it's like less and less being a part of the family. Then all of a sudden, you don't serve anymore. Now we show up Christmas and Easter. And these are people that 20 years ago were all in. 20 years ago, your faith was alive and you were loving being a part of community and there was fruit in your life. And now Jesus has just become sort of a a peripheral, an add-on. And I would call you today because I love you. Warning. Dead faith. Dead faith. In Bible doctrine, we learn this thing called the perseverance of the saints. Meaning that we don't start strong and end bad. The perseverance of the saints is that we are faithful to the very last breath. And I'm concerned for some of you in the room, some of you watching online today, because we've watched it as pastors. We've watched you slowly fade It doesn't happen overnight. It's not just a one-time thing. It's this slow, year after year after year, slowly, slowly drifting away. May today serve as a warning sign to you. Change your mind.
Repent. Return. Next parable. Verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of the house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and he leased it to the tenants and he went into another country. Let me give you the sort of the idea of this and then as we read through it, it'll make sense. The master of the house is God the Father. The vineyard is God's people, Israel. The tenants are Israel's leaders. Remember context. The chief priest, the scribes, the Pharisees, this is who he's talking to. He's, they're the tenants. They're the ones that are taking care of the vineyard. So listen to it with that. Verse 34. When the season of fruit drew near, the, the owner, the master of the house, this is God the Father, sends his servants to the tenants, the religious leaders, to get his fruit. And the tenants... Those religious leaders took his servants, these would be the prophets that God sent in the Old Testament, and they beat one, they killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. So he doesn't just stop with the first servants that he sends, he sends more servants to this vineyard to get its fruit, and they did the same thing to them. Verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. So God the Father, right? You get in the picture. God the Father has sent prophets to the children of Israel, right? He's, he sent these prophets and they've killed these prophets that were bringing the message of God. Now he thinks, I'm going to send my son. Surely, surely they'll listen to him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They wanted the power. They wanted the reward. It was all about them. And they took the son and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Again, this is what they're about to do to Jesus in just a few days. When therefore... The owner of the vineyard comes, verse 40, what will he do to those tenants? Again, Jesus, masterful teacher, ends it with a question. Told you the story. Now, who do you, what do you think he's going to do to the guys who've killed his prophets and have killed his son? How would you answer that question? And so here's how they're, they're thinking through this. And it's like, well, again, just like the first story, the answer is probably pretty obvious. Verse 41, he will put, this is what they're saying, this owner will put those wretcheds to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to lend or let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So the idea is he's going to take it away from the tenants and he's going to give it to another tenant so that they'll give him the fruit that is rightfully ours because he's the owner of it. The implication is he's taking it away from 
the Jewish Israel, and he is giving it to this one new man known as the church. Right? He's giving it to the people of God. But they answer, if I was that guy, I would kill the tenants. I would take care of them and give it to somebody who's going to give them the fruits back to him. Verse 42, Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Don't you guys remember what Psalms 118 verse 22 and 23 say? That the stone that the builders rejected has become this chief cornerstone. The idea was when they would build a building in this first century, they would get a stone and they would put it at the corner of the building and that was the stone for which they would build off of. And even on that stone, they would typically inscribe the date, they would scribe the name of the person who this building belongs to or who had a part in building the building. And so he's saying this cornerstone that the builders walked over and rejected or tripped over is actually the one that is the chief cornerstone. So what is Jesus implying here? Jesus implying that he is the fulfillment of Psalms 118. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the, the fulfillment of that verse in Psalms 118 verses 22 and 23. So if we understand that, that he is... The fulfillment of that, verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. Again, this is heavy. The kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and it's going to be given to people who bear its fruit. It reminds me of Paul as he's talking about the church. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 following. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Listen to Paul's words. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of God. He's saying Jesus is that cornerstone of Psalms 118. And because we recognize it, we can be a part of the family of God. But verse 44, this is the destruction. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Jesus is saying those who reject me, they will be destroyed. They will end in destruction. Now, oftentimes when we hear this idea of authority and justice or judgment, we think incorrectly about God. Because when we think authority and justice, we often think of guys like Vladimir Putin, right? Who has this great authority, but he uses his his power. He uses this authority that he has for things that are wrong. I want you to understand God never does that. God never uses his authority in just sort of a halfway. I'm going to, this is just my thing. I'm going to do whatever I want because I want. No, if you go back and read through the story, you see the grace of God and the patience of God. 
Because he could have just sent one servant and said, that's enough, I'm done with you. But what does he do? He sends more servants and more servants. And then he finally says, you know what? If they've rejected all these servants, I want them to respond. I want them to give me what is rightfully mine. So then he sends his son. Isn't that the grace of God? So be careful when we sort of lump the justice of God and authority and sort of this human thinking God's authority doesn't work that way. In fact, Peter would say this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief in the night, then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are in it will be exposed. Peter says, there is a day coming, but the Lord is patient. And here is the warning sign that I see from this parable. The warning sign that Jesus is saying to them is don't reject me. There's this rejection of Jesus. I've sent my son to you. God has sent his son to you. Do not reject him. Today could be the day for you that you get off the road of rejection of Jesus that leads to death and you get on the road of believing in Jesus that leads to life. You see, it says in verse 45 and 46, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They put two and two together. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They still rejected him. Even though he's giving these warning signs to them, they still are driving the car of their life full speed into a pileup of cars. Because they're rejecting Jesus. So my question for you is, which group are you? The one who rejects Jesus or the one that changes their minds and believes in Jesus? The thing about this passage of Scripture today is that it's, it's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? Yes. Like those parables aren't confusing. I don't read them or study them and be like, I'm not really sure what Jesus was after. They're, they're really clear. But the hard part is that they expose our hearts. They expose dead faith. They expose this rejection of Jesus. And so my questions for you as we end is which son are you? Dead faith or living faith? Which group are you? Rejecting Jesus or trusting Jesus? There's really only two groups in this room. 
There's not a third way. Either our faith is alive and living or it's dead. Either we're trusting in Jesus or we're rejecting Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Listen, I, knowing who Jesus' audience was, right, this, again, wasn't, he wasn't talking to tax collectors and prostitutes. He was talking to Pharisees and scribes. He was talking to people who knew the Bible, who went to Bible studies, who served at the temple, And yet he's giving them warning signs of a dead faith. He's giving warning signs that they're rejecting Jesus. And my heart for you is that if you're that person in the room today, that today you would see the warning sign before you get to the pileup. That today you would make the decision to say, I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm believing in him. That I I want to be that that first son. Who, yeah, maybe at first I I didn't really want to go to the vineyard, but I want to do the Father's will. You want to be a part of that second group that the the owner gives the fruit, that gives the, the vineyard to so that we can return fruit to him. We can give praise back to him. So can I encourage you, don't let pride get in the way of your heart today. If you need to make that step of faith, you say, Stephen, but if you look at my profile at church, I'm a member. I've been a member for 25 years. Good for you. That's not gonna matter at the end of the day if your faith was dead. That's not going to matter if ultimately you rejected Jesus. And so today, I want to call you right where you're sitting to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. To not be like the scribes and the Pharisees who blew right through the warning signs, right into destruction, right into death. But that today would be the day of your salvation. Today would be the day that your faith comes alive. Today would be the day that you trust in Jesus. Listen, if you would be willing to do that, in the seat pocket in front of you, there's a connection card. I would love for you, after I pray and we sing a song, for you to take a minute and just write your name, write a way that we can get a hold of you, and I'd love to talk with you about your heart and where you're at in your journey. And I'd love to know that today was the day that you went from a dead faith to a living faith. That you went from rejecting Jesus to trusting in Jesus. Listen, this is the grace of God that you hear these words of Jesus today. Don't reject him. Trust him. Father, thank you.
for your word. It's always easier to talk about someone else, somebody outside these walls than our own hearts and our own lives. And so thank you that today you've exposed our hearts, that you've given us warning signs as you did to the religious leaders of the day. Help us not to be a church that is not, does not have a living faith. Help us to not be a people that in our desire to be religious and right, we reject you, we miss you. I pray for the courage for the person sitting in these seats or watching online today that you had them hear this message to respond to you, to believe in you, to trust in you. May they heed the warning sign. May they get on the road of a living faith and a believing and trusting faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's Antioch bbc.org God's best to you